Hi everyone and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. My name is Steve Ingham. The idea behind these podcasts is to find a better way of us being able to create performance. So we're interested in understanding ourselves, our teams and culture and supporting other people along the way. And we're also interested in the science behind high performance as well as the art of how we actually go about delivering it. And then asking, of course, the questions about why do we do what we do? We're keen to explore all the key areas, what are the determining factors of high performance? Get to know some of the people along the way who've been responsible for driving high performance. And we'll be trying to learn the lessons. How can we all develop so that where we're looking back over our lives, that we can be content with what we've achieved but also be proud about the way that we've done it. You can subscribe on YouTube, iTunes and supportingchampions.co.uk to get these insights straight to your inbox. Welcome to the fifth episode of the Supporting Champions podcast. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Emily Tiano, a psychologist who has spent her life helping optimise the performance of others. She's done that in sports and business and many other fields. And particularly, Emily has an expertise in mindfulness, and that's something we're going to to explore through this interview. I ask Emily about her own sporting background and, and hear about how that's served as a reference point for many of her own lessons through life. I talk to her about her early career and, and find out how she made her own opportunities, as well as some of the work that she's done over the years, supporting the elite sailors and the swimmers. Then I get into mindfulness and it's fascinating to hear Emily's research and insight into this area about how we can all choose to think about where we put our attention when we're going through life's experiences. Also get into the neuroscience and some of the hard facts about what it actually causes in terms of the brain development. So it's fascinating to catch up with Emily and hear about her journey and some of the insights that she had. I'll provide you with some of the take-home messages that that I take from this interview. But equally, if you have any questions or thoughts or comments, then please do share those with us. We'd love to hear what you're thinking too. I'm delighted to say also that after the interview, Emily took me through a three-minute mindfulness exercise. And I I convinced Emily to share that as an audio track. Um, So we've got a three-minute mindfulness coaching track that you can download from the Supporting Champions website, SoundCloud or iTunes, uh, that you can benefit when you're feeling a little bit stressed or that you need to perhaps reframe a little bit. Uh, then Emily has provided that voiceover coaching track that, that you can benefit from too. More details on that at the end of the podcast. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us, Emily. Um, I'm, I'm really keen to ask you, before I get into your career and your uh, expertise, I'm really keen to ask you about this crazy sport that you yeah. have done. <laughs> yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, my sport uh, was, I guess, because I'm not doing it anymore, was fin swimming. So, um, fin swimming? Fin swimming is not too famous in the UK. Um, it's, it's a bit more famous in Europe. Uh, it's, uh, so it's, massive, it's basically a massive fin. It's like a, basically a dolphin fin. Some people would say mermaid, but mermaid, yeah. they don't exist and they're slow, so I prefer dolphin. Um, <laughs> so it's like a dolphin fin, and you, basically the aim of this is like a racing sport. So yeah. the aim is to go as fast as you can, and you've got uh, same events as swimming in the pool. So from 50 meters to 1500 meters. And then you've got open water uh, fin swimming, so you'll be uh, three, six, and twenty kilometers uh, wow. in open water. And I was my special specialty was twenty k um, in in open water. Twenty k with a snorkel. Uh, yes, yeah, so we've got a, a straight snorkel and then a big a big fin. Uh, like the I guess the yeah the size is like this. Yeah. And then you put your both feet in it, and then your yeah. arms are like this the whole time. Like yes, this. yeah. So except in open water, because you wanna you wanna make sure you're going in the right direction. So every oh. ten undulation and a ten kick, you just do this just to look, make sure you're going straight, and then you go back there, and then you just undulate. Like wow, that. that must be an incredible uh, strain, core. 
yeah. uh, flexibility. I guess yeah. The 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 main uh, muscle working is the is the core, the back, the the bum, and the quads. Mm. Uh, and because you you're not moving, you, you're not doing this with your legs. You really it's like your whole body right. except the at the um, sorry the arms yeah. are not supposed to move. So it start the undulation starts here, and then it's uh, yeah. it's really, uh, quite big work with the core. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's really cool because when I I did swimming since I was six um, competition and stuff. But I don't know if as soon as I tried fin swimming, it just felt really fast and it's like a propulsion right. feeling. So you 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 really above the water and and uh, yeah, it's really cool. So it's it's got an excitement to it in, in that yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. I was living in the Caribbean with my family and uh, we saw people swimming in with a fin uh, just near the beach we were and I was like, oh my god, I just want to do that. Right. And I was like nine. So. Mm. Wow. It's um. So you could um, when at the start of a triathlon and everyone splashes in and the the sea looks like it's exploding. And, yeah. Um. You could potentially not know an event is going on with just these snorkels <laughs> yeah. he heading yeah. across the, s the shore. Yeah, you see, you see bomb going up all okay. the time. So. <laughs> Bums and snorkels. <laughs> yeah, that's basically what you see. <laughs> so wow, that cool. sounds an incredible event. Um, mm. Is there is there any chance that will ever be uh, on a, an Olympic yeah. stage or? Uh, like I don't know. It's I, I don't know how it is in each country, but in France, it's recognised as being uh, is like as an elite athlete in fin swimming. You're on the list of the Ministry of Sport, so you recognise as being an right. elite athlete, and then you've got all the advantage for that. And I see. and the sport is recognised as potentially being Olympic, but it's not. And uh, I mean, there's so many sports who are trying to get in. Yeah. I don't think fin swimming will get in before. Uh, others who are trying for a long time. So I mean, the fin swimming is trying, and I think it's it's quite spectacular, spectacular actually, because I can't remember what's the speed, but for hundred meters, I think the it's around thirty second. Um, um, I think t the time to, t to take oh, wow. two hundred meters is is really fast, and yeah, it's really cool to watch. Wow, mm. I'd love to. I think I'd like to have a go. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, I bring the fin <laughs> next time I come to the bring UK. Bring the fin. Yeah. yeah. And we'll go to the Caribbean. Okay, yes, sounds good. <laughs> sounds good. Fantastic. Well, that's um, that sounds like a, an early sample of being an elite athlete yourself. Yeah. And mm. how did that serve you going forward when yeah. you started to study? Start, you, you're a sports psychologist or a yeah. performance psychologist. Um, how, how did that serve you well? Um, so I think for me, like, uh, so I started competing internationally I was in the French team since I was 15 so in the junior team and then I carried on to the uh, senior national team and um, I think quite quickly I felt a bit limited uh, yeah. with some internal sort of I guess limitations and especially around like the way I was managing my emotion I was always trying to feel perfect and think perfect but right. I was chasing something that I was not sure how to control and um, and then, so I think I became really curious about how could I optimize uh, the way I think, the way I feel, the way I commit, especially in a 20K where you have to swim for three hours and a half, where you just need to give everything for three hours and a half. There's lots of moments where you have time to think and doubt yourself. And yeah. so I really, I, w I was really, um, I guess, fascinated by how can I express myself fully as a human being in my performance? Mm how to unlock my full potential and a lot of the time I felt like I was just under that potential and so that really started to uh, yeah to trigger my my interest and um, and I did one year of engineer school but really quickly I said no engineering, engineering okay. and thinking how can I I always wanted to work in sport mm. so I started engineering and I was like no no that's not I want to be within the human side of things right. so I moved to psychology and um, yeah, and I always I studied psychology knowing I wanted to work in with elite athletes. Um, oh wow, that's interesting. So so you you said there about wanting to feel perfect, wanting mm. to almost have this sort of clear and pure mind. Yeah, yeah. And mm. your your studies or your realization is that that's not possible. That's not necessarily helpful. Exactly. Okay. In the last year of my um, so. Well, um, I, my, I guess my goal was to medal at a world championship mm. uh, on 20, in 20 kilometers and 
And so, as, as you just said, I was always chasing something that was ideal and perfect from a mind state, from a, mm. from a feeling perspective, and, and I discovered mindfulness in my last year being in the French team, and it completely liberated me, because I, I, I started to be able to accept how I was thinking, how I was feeling, to be able to focus in the present moment without being, I guess, um, uh, disrupted by my ruminative thinking uh, around judging how I was feeling or thinking. So it really helped me to um, just to embrace. Um, so you've mentioned mindfulness, so I'm keen, um, yeah. I'm going to stop myself from leaping ahead yeah, yeah, because yeah. that's really yeah. um, what I wanted to talk to you about. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I, I need to be disciplined enough to yeah. ask you questions because I'm really fascinated to know how it all sort of started yeah. for you. Mm -hmm. um, so where did you where did you study? Uh, yeah. What was your sort of key breakthroughs there? Yeah, so I studied uh, psychology, so clinical psychology, uh, at a school in Paris mm. called uh, Ecole des Psychologues Praticiens, so in French. Um, and uh, it was really, really good school because we had, um, so it was five years study, and then the, so the last three years we were basically doing two days course and then three days internship. And that was that was amazing to do that because I think it gave me and we were we had a supervisor and and yeah. and uh, and I, I think we learned a lot in in those three years to actually how could we link the theory and the science that we were learning at school and how we would apply it straight away in the on the field mm. and and really quickly I did all my uh, internships um, in sport so I did um, two years at INSEP at the French Institute. Right as an intern and then I did one year in a regional centre of sport in the south of France uh, where I guess France is a bit, um, in a way it's a bit similar but you've got the French National Institute at INSEP mm -hmm. and then you've got lots of regional centres of sport all over in France but you've got, uh, and each regional centre will have maybe five to ten sports uh, and then mm -hmm. and the level is different, sometimes it's junior teams, sometimes it's national teams training there. So, and I was based in the South one, with uh, about 10 sports. So you've had quite a, a varied career, almost before you, you're let loose on, yeah. on people. So you've had to serve internships rounds to, yeah. to be able to acquire that experience before you're out at the big bad world. Yeah, definitely, with, with um, some amazing mentors as well. I had the Jean Fournier Insect who worked for maybe about 20 years with a lot of national teams. Mm. Uh, and it, it was one of the pioneers of, of sports psychology in in, uh, in France, mm. so it was amazing to uh, to spend a lot of time with him at uh, INSEP, and um, yeah, it was I guess for me it was it's almost like um, a really important uh, step uh, when you develop as a sport practitioner to be able to make sure you can uh, test your 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 thoughts whatever you've learned on the ground and, and get some feedback from mm. the people. Uh, haven't studied, but actually people you you, you work with. Yeah. So yeah, it was really good. Well, you mentioned engineering, and that's that's a career that I believe in the UK is starting to become um, far more vocational. Oh, really? Whereas a lot of the science-based studies mm. um, and even some medical practitioners are now starting to get dominated by the academic side of things mm. rather than the doing, the applied yeah, yeah, nature yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like there's a different model. In, in France? Yeah, I mean, in psychology, this school of psychology is, is really well known for right. the, the number of days you do as an intern, as an intern um, during your study. It's, it's quite a, that's why it's called the Practitioner Psychology School, uh, yeah. because it's very applied. Um, and the, yeah, so, and, and a lot of the teachers actually are applied practitioners. Right. Um, yeah, so they're not just academics. They, they, they do work in the real world, and so yeah, it's really good. So we enjoyed that. So you didn't stay in France, did you no. leap straight yeah. down under to Australia? Uh, yeah, almost. I spent after I did my so after I had my master of psychology, I yeah I worked in that uh, regional centre of sport for about a year, I think, and then I decided to visit my brother in Perth, uh, who, who was mm. living there, and. Um, that's one of the things I, I think uh, helped me in life quite a lot is I, I just love meeting people. So I decided, because right. I was going to Perth, I decided to write an email to one of the professors at the University of Western Australia. Right. His name was Bob Grove and uh, he's quite famous in the research side of things in sports psychology, really applied 
really good. And uh, he received me in his office, I remember we talked about a few things, including mindfulness, because I was quite interested by that at the time. And uh, he put me in contact with uh, an amazing sports psychologist at the Western Australian Institute of Sport at WACE, Matthew Bergen. So I met him, and then from that on, we started this crazy idea that I was going to get a scholarship to do my PhD in Australia. Yeah. So I came back to France after doing my visit and my mm. few weeks of amazing holidays in this beautiful country. And I, I did all the things I needed to do to apply for the scholarship and three months later I had a three year scholarship to right. do. So to do my PhD, so the, it, it was an amazing opportunity because in France it's really hard to get a, a scholarship to do a PhD, okay. especially in the area of sports psychology. Um, but so in Australia, I had my um, so the university fees paid by the scholarship, mm. and the Western Australian Institute of Sport gave me a salary for three years and a half to do to do my PhD and to work as a sports psychologist right. within the institute. So it was part-time, basically, I was doing yeah. my PhD and part-time I was working as a practitioner. And in the end, when I think about it now, it's, it's almost a continuity of when I studied psychology. Mm. It was still like a back and forth between science and applied work. Okay. And that was amazing. So I'm interested to, to ask you about that moment you thought, I'm visiting my brother. Mm. Um, I'm over there anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, because it sounds like you're making your own luck. A little bit there. Mm. Uh, a lot of people sort of say, oh, well, they've, they've studied hard so they've got that break or they know somebody else. Mm. But this sort of making your own luck part of your own career, that's interesting. What was going through your mind as you were, I'll just go for it, I'll just write them a, a letter? Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't even, I can't even remember if at the time, I think, I, yeah, I can't, I don't think at the time I was thinking about doing a PhD. I think I was just, I'm just, I guess the first thing is I love people. That's mm. as the first. I love connecting. I love, I love meeting people who I always believe. I believe I always. I'm always going to learn something if I meet someone and have a conversation, whoever that person is. So I think having that belief, I, I thought I'm going to Perth. Why not meeting the people who are in the same area as me, just yeah. to connect. Um, and I, and also I think I'm a really optimistic person. So when I meet someone, I was. Um, I don't know, I'm just fully in the moment, I just, I completely embrace uh, the connection that's happening and, and if there is a, a project or an opportunity going out of that meeting, I always believe it's possible, yeah. so I never fear um, failing, I guess, in okay. that. So, yeah, so I don't know, it was, um, and, 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 uh, and uh, I think in my life there's a lot of uh, breaking through moments um, that happen because of that belief right. in meeting people and connecting and... Okay. And actually, my first internship at INSEP, when I met Jean Fournier, I, rem I always remember I called him as out of the blue. I was like, I, I got his number some somewhere, and uh, I said, oh, I really want to come and do an internship at INSEP. So yeah, I was my, I was my, it was my third year of, of studying psychology, and he said, yeah, you know, it's really difficult to become a sports psychologist. So um, I'm not sure. So it was it was not really yeah, keen. Okay. So he said, just go out there, just meet some people and come back to me, um, maybe just, you know, go to Canada, Montreal, there's lots of sports psychologists, just yeah. go out in the world and then come back to me. I, I, straight away, I organized a trip for two months in Mont Montreal, I met about 10 people there that all knew Jean Fournier, and they all sent, not all of them, but some of them sent him an email that they met me. So when I came back, it took me as an intern, and then it was sort of the start of my... That's interesting, so, yeah, so I, I mean, over the years, mm. I've been contacted with thousands of people, and mm. I, I'll just say, right, go and do something. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is yeah. necessarily. They all got this this illusion that they have to be um, rubbing up against elite athletes every day before yeah. they get the opportunity to to actually work in in elite sport. Yeah. Um, just go and work with people, so you know that you're exactly you can engage. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and yeah. One percent will do it. Yeah, ninety-nine percent exactly. deselect them themselves. It sounds like yeah. you're one of those one percent that yeah, I'm going to yeah. make this happen for myself. Yeah, but I think you, you I think um, I wouldn't describe myself as a very confident person. But I think for some stuff, um, I don't doubt. Like yeah. if I really want something, I think maybe because life always reinforced me that if I really want something and I work for it, I have it. So yeah. now it's like a okay. virtual circle that. 
every time I want something, I work for it and I don't give up because I know it will happen. Um, Where's that come from? Tell me where. What's um, that sort of background that's that's given you that? I don't know. I think I think part of it is probably sport, where you right. just like. Um, even though I was not always successful in my sport, but I think it's this feeling of if I really work hard and smartly, yeah. at some point I will see some results. Mm. Um, maybe also because at school I was not bad, and maybe because my parents also believed, always believed in me. Yeah, um, yeah I'm not sure. Well, associating, associating industry with results and sport that is effort-based. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, I think and, and, and not being afraid to work harder, I guess, as mm. well. I always I think I like working hard. It's not something that scares yeah. me. Yeah. So Australia, back to France and yeah. then on to the UK. Tell me about that part yeah. of your journey. So yeah, so I <clears throat> uh, I guess when I was in Australia doing my PhD I get I got in contact with Pete Lindsay. I can't remember oh, because I I went to a conference, I met Nigel Walker in a conference oh. in in France. I can't remember how it happened. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I organized a visit tour with some of the Australian um, uh, people from the Institute. Yeah. And then I went to INSEP with them and then I met Nigel. And Nigel asked me to get in contact with Pete because mm. I already said, I'm really interested by the UK system. Mm. I already heard it was really good. And I guess um, I already thought in my mind, if I come back to Europe after Australia, maybe the UK would be a really good place to work. So I came back to France, but I got in contact with Pete, and I also met you at a conference at INSEP, mm -hmm. which was a really great um, way for me to, again, I think just um, just feel how you could um, really align science and applied work in a really smart way that feel is going to have an impact. Mm -hmm. And I think every time I met someone from the UK system, including you, Pete, or other people, I always felt actually you can it, it can be really clear what you do. And also, it can have a strong impact. Mm. Uh, as sometime in France, I was a bit confused mm. with the system, with the definition of what is sports psychology. Um, I think the UK is a lot more advanced on that. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I did one year in SEP, which was really good experience. I worked at the um, at the sort of the Olympic department to help federations to organise themselves in sports science services. So mm. that was really interesting. Um, and then. Um, and then uh, the sailing job came up with the uh, EIS, and um, yeah, I was uh, super super excited to apply. It was for me. It was when I read the job description. It was my dream job. Like I couldn't dream for better than that. Wow. So, so you worked with the team up to up to Rio. Yeah. So I I came to so I started in July 2014 with sailing uh, the British sailing team, and I worked until March 2017. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I did all the, I guess, the second part of the cycle to get ready for Rio, went to Rio with the Olympic and the Paralympic team, and then I did the six months after that, uh, which was really good, I think, to do, to do the post-Olympics and Paralympics uh, time as well. So tell us a little bit about the psychology of sailing. What are the key demands upon a sailor uh, in order to perform a regatta over a whole period of the, of the Olympics and Paralympics? How do you support them? What are the what they yeah, needs? There's there's lots of things. Uh, I guess on a from a pure sort of sport specificity, I think sailing is a sport where you always have to make decisions. Mm. Um, even when they decide to go straight, it's still a decision. So they always constantly have okay. to decide where they're going. <laughs> and um, and I guess in a in a decision making sport, the 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 way you your emotions, the way you feel, the way you assess the environment, the, mm. the way you assess yourself is going to affect your decision-making process. So, right. so one key objective for me was to make sure there's no psychological bias affecting their decision-making process. Um, so really removing anything that would um, yeah, um, become noise in the way they're going to make decisions. And how do you do that? How do you go about that? Um, I guess it's really about making sure you really, you help them to the first thing is how to know themselves as much as possible. So, knowing um, what's gonna in I guess in the race or in a regatta, what's gonna trigger really strong emotions, okay. uh, and how they're gonna react in those situations. To then make sure that in the moment they're gonna have this really high level of awareness to 
be able either to regulate the, the emotions or to focus on what's really important in the moment rather than being caught up in the in the noise. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of work around around awareness and self uh, and knowledge of themselves. Um, there's also, I guess, and and I don't know, I don't think that's specific to sailing, but a lot of the work I've done was to help them to just know who they are as people. So what is their values from a I guess from an identity perspective to make sure, because I do believe um, elite athlete, they, if, if, we, if we're aiming for sustainable performance, not, not just a one-off performance, we really, it's really important to support them to just really develop as people. So, so yeah, helping them to clarify who they are, why, why they're doing what they're doing, what gets them out of bed in the morning. Um, Almost learn even when they when they don't achieve their goals when they fail how they how much they can see that as a learning opportunity and and de to develop resilience um, all these sort of things and and for me my my sort of ended goal was how to help them become really robust as sailors but also as as, as people mm. and to really enjoy as much as possible the journey I guess as well. So that's interesting. So it's not a case of uh, I need to do this in my boat now, so I need to follow this decision-making process A, B, C, and therefore I'm, I've made a good decision. You're, what you're talking about there is is freeing the mind mm. to make good decisions in the moment by clearing away the noise. Yeah. Mm. And part of clearing that noise is by, by giving them foundational purpose exactly, yeah. mm. to, to know I, I'm okay, it's alright to have these doubts and yeah, exactly. I, I, I'm on a mission to do this with my life yeah. um, so that any doubts and thoughts that are in the moment get, get swept away. Yeah, exactly. I, I think mm. you, you, you summarised it really well. It's almost how we can build a really solid frame so that when, like, when, they, it's almost when they look at a situation, it, there's something that is so solid, yeah. that the, sort of the foundation are so solid that the, the, this this trigger or some this disruption is just going to be in the surface. It's not mm. going to challenge what's really deep there. And I like that approach because it, uh, a decision-making framework might work. I don't know half the time. Mm. Might work two thirds of the time. Mm. But giving people foundational purpose and and it speaking to some of the deep universal principles mm. of what we need. Mm. Um, to, to help yeah. the operation up here, yeah, yeah. that's, that's going to work a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and it's definitely not sailing specific, I think. It's, okay. It would be my approach with any sort of any athlete or human being I might yeah. work with. And, and yeah, I, I do believe for, to unlock potential, I think that this foundational work is, is really important. But sometimes you might not start with that. Sometimes you really start with very concrete uh, mental processes that you're going to okay. optimize or or help the athlete having some emotional regulation techniques so to make sure in the moment they're able to manage stress or things like that. Mm. And then the more, I guess, you build stress, the more you help the athletes know themselves, um, mm. the more you might uh, go a bit deeper in that sort of right. foundation work. Um, the other thing I've done a lot with sailing is, is working, because um, a lot of the boats are team work, so they're two, two yeah. or sometimes three in the Paralympics. Um, the 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 um, sorry one really key factor is how they communicate and how much they are aligned as a team as a as a as a two when they talk because they're gonna make a decision. Okay. I mean it's not always the two are making decision together, but the the information needs to come in by one person right. and the other one makes the decision. But they always need to be completely connected and, and okay. aligned. So it was fascinating to work on sort of this team, how it can function as optimally as possible in the highest pressure situation. I'm interested to know how you work with that because often in teams, and it perhaps relates to the boardroom or a team management mm. meeting where someone's made a decision and not everybody's behind that decision mm. and people go off and do their own thing. Yeah. I don't think you can do that in a boat, can you? You can't start putting sails up that go in a different mm. direction. Mm. Um, yeah. So how did you work with that to, to try and get commitment behind yeah. decisions? Yeah, I think so. 
one, uh, I mean, some coaches, uh, it's not always the sports psychologist who's going to help a team in a boat mm. working together. I think the, the, the coaches in sailing are, are quite amazing, actually, as, as uh, managers, uh, you know, as, as, as how to get the best out of a team in a boat. Um, but as sports psychologists, sometimes we can help just to make sure um, it's as solid as possible, and okay. sometimes we bring some specific tools. But one of the key things I might do is to help the team having a really clear vision of who they want to be as a team. Right. So, for example, being able to clarify, you know, what what uh, values are going to underpin uh, their teamwork, mm. and to translate that into behaviors. Um, and so one key thing is that sort of uh, honesty to be able to to raise the hand if they disagree. So I, with what you just said, I agree, when you are in the race, it's probably, it has to be really smooth and very fluid yeah. and you can't. But when you, in the pre-race chat, when they're, when they're starting to sort of uh, set up the priorities for the race, the strategic sort of, um, plan that they want to have for the race, mm -hmm. um, they almost lay down the foundations of how they're going to make each little decision, even if things change, they start to build the framework okay. of the day, uh, with depending on the conditions and things. And when they do and when they do have that conversation, and the coach is, is part of that conversation sometime, that's when the team needs to be really, really honest if one of the three person is not. Right. You know, disagree or something like that, and and it's that trust and respect and honesty that needs to be there um, as a foundation again. Right. Um, so we're going to do a lot of work on that, and then and then for in the race uh, sort of moment, we we sometimes we worked on very specific sort of communication tools and to make sure they could reset really quickly when uh, when they started to. Sort of disconnect, okay, or when the right. communication went down, or when the tempo was too high, or so we sort of almost anticipated all these different disruption of communication to know exactly how to reset it to an optimal okay. uh, level. So anything that needs to be said, get that sorted before they get out into the water, mm, before they and, start the race. Mm. And if it gets, and if it starts to unravel a little bit, then then they then they have a way of. Being able to exactly. stop, reset, and let's let's go again. Exactly. Yeah. For for me, when I look at sports psychology, I think I think the the skills of being able to reset, because one one I guess big assumption um, sometimes that we make is that we're gonna build our plan, gonna have an ideal plan, and we're just gonna execute that plan. Yeah. But in elite sport, we all know that that plan is gonna be disrupted. Mm all the time and we have to adapt all the time. So one really, really key skill that I think sports psychology can really help coaches and athletes develop is that ability to adapt okay. in the moment, um, the ability to reset and, and to accept that we all, the, the, there's going to be so many times where they're going to be disrupted, they're going to be um, distracted. Okay. And how to teach the, almost like this cognitive flexibility to notice when you start being distracted or disrupted, to accept whatever distracted you, to bring you back to the present moment, to mm. be focused on what's really effective in the moment. That skill for me is one of the, the most important skills for the performance. Sounds like it relates back to your days as a, an athlete, that, that it's going to go wrong, or mm. it's going to feel doubtful. Exactly. But, but, I, but you get an advantage because you're prepared for it or you're... Yeah. Um, you're actually uh, heading it off. Yeah, exactly. You need to spend time clarifying what is it that you want to focus on, what is your optimal focus during the performance. But once you've clarified that, mm. you, you, you need to be able to anticipate and to be aware in the moment if something is taking you away to bring you back to what's optimal. So we're drifting here to the, to the topic that, yeah. that I wanted to mm. talk to you about, mindfulness. Mm. Um, tell me, what, what is it? Yeah, so um, mindfulness, I guess you, you've got different ways to look at it. So I'm, I'm going to be a bit biased because I'm going to talk to you mainly about the way I studied it in my yeah. PhD. Um, in, the main, in mainstream psychology, mindfulness is the ability to be aware of what's going on in the present moment in a non-judgmental way. So it's a way to pay attention to the present non-judgmentally. So it's the ability to basically just receive... Um, 
all the information that are going on internally and externally, but to just be in that moment. Yeah. The way I I conceptualized it in my PhD is more as a, as a what I called a self metacognitive self-regulation strategy. So it's a bit what I was talking about before is the ability to to notice when the 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 focus of attention is not directed at, at what's effective in the moment. So it's almost that sort of observing self that is able to see when um, when you're not on what's what matters anymore. Okay. To then bring it back, and that that's what we call meta awareness, that ability to see, and then and then you need to accept that something distracted you, because mm -hmm. if you engage in what distracted you, then you're going to be distracted for even longer. So. There's a lot, I guess, a lot of athletes I used to work with who might fight a bit some of their negative emotions or some of the, maybe, I don't know, for example, um, a, a jury decision during a, a, a football game. Right. The athlete might uh, start to ruminate uh, or to dwell on the jury decision, or on the judge, um, how do you say? In, in referee. Referee, so, sorry, yeah, 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 the referee. Not, I, like, I like the idea of a jury. <laughs> Uh, I was decision. thinking I about uh, that's, that's what the crowd is normally. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. yeah, a good point. Um, so, so he might dwell on that on that decision, for example, while yeah. still playing, and 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 the so the mind is not in the present moment anymore, and it's how to help this athlete realizing actually he's not he hasn't accepted the decision, he hasn't accepted how he f he's feeling, and he's not aware of how. He's feeling and how he's focusing on the okay. jury's uh, the referee's decision. Therefore, he's not in the present any anymore. So mindfulness in that case, in sport, for me, is the ability to notice that the focus of attention is still on on this past thing that just happened, and that there's lots of uh, reaction that is going on inside us. It's how we can accept all of that to bring it back, to free the brain, to bring it back to the present moment, okay. uh, the attention in the present. So, just for, for anyone who's tuning in, so what? What, what does that do? Um, in, in some ways, you could think, like, it's, not, it's not a bad thing to, to consider what's happened before. Yeah. Um, what's the added advantage, what's the performance advantage yeah. for, for that, that technique of thinking, recognizing that out-of-body experience so that you can look forward? Yeah. So uh, if if I just speak personally to start with, mm. for me when I when I did an eight week course mindfulness, it was the mindfulness based stress reduction course, which is 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 a course um, designed for sort of clinical psychology. And the first time I did this course for eight weeks, it completely liberated me from uh, my overthinking sort of tendency, because I'm someone who's constantly trying to. I guess, again, make sure I'm focusing on the right thing or thinking about the right thing or and, and really help me to actually believe that each thought is just a, a transitory event. Each feeling is, is a transitory feeling. It's not going to stay mm -hmm. forever. So the more okay. I sort of accept the presence of of events going through my head or, or sensations I'm feeling in the moment, even just pain, is something that is going to pass at some point. So the ability to take some distance and diffuse with that internal experience, accept its presence, but not fully engage in it, it just gives you the space, basically, to choose how you want to respond. Okay. So it gives real freedom and real empowerment with, um, with your day-to-day -day experience, mm. basically. And initially, mindfulness has been, uh, it comes from Buddhism and Eastern practices initially. But then when it's been, when it's been um, uh, used in, in the mainstream psychology to start with, it was to help people, uh, prevent them to, um, I can't, sorry, um, fall into depression again. Okay. So uh, people could notice when they would start to be um, triggered by a negative thought and rather than going down the negative spiral they would be able to notice that they were starting to fall into that spiral again diffuse and disengage from the negative thought and then we sort of we commit to the actions or the behaviors that would help them in the moment so so there's a clinical uh, there's a clinical application uh, that Ultimately, there's a start point for 
falling into depression or relapsing or, yeah, exactly, or coming, yeah. coming into that. It's a start point yeah. and to catch them early. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, that you've, when, when, it, when athletes get closer to competition, they talk to me about the noise, the in, inner yeah. record, the inner yeah. voice that plays gets, gets louder and louder. And yeah. so is it in the same way applicable to be able to stop it getting too yeah noisy. exactly exactly is 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 accepting the is accepting the fact that they will experience mm. um difficult um experiences from an internal perspective so they will have doubts they will have uh, nerves they will have um negative thoughts kicking in at different points before sometimes even during the performance so it's accepting that to start with but being able to notice when these negative thoughts or difficult feelings are coming in mm. to be able to rather than sort of diving into that and having many more is being able to sort of uh, diffuse take distance and and choose to refocus on something that is helpful in the moment mm. so it'd be their routine for example if it's a pre-performance sort of moment it will be um i worked a lot with swimming it would be when they're in the marshalling area they start having these nerves yeah starting to grow, they can see their competitors may, maybe playing mind games or doing this, okay. like uh, this famous Brazilian sprinter. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and, and so the ability to, in the moment, to have that helicopter view on what's going on inside ourselves, mm. being able to just accept what is there is there, but the ability to just refocus back on breathing or refocus back on the key words I want to think about during my race, okay. or being able to, etc. Rather than fighting with the, either fighting with the, the nerves, for example, if I feel butterfly in my stomach, I'm start, I can start to fight that, I can start to not accept that I'm feeling really nervous, mm. and I'm, I'm panicking about that, because okay. I hate feeling like that. Mm. And so mindfulness is really helping to accepting, to then free the, the mind to refocus on. So you've, you've said a couple of words there that are interesting for me. So acceptance, it sounds like a way of reframing of, mm. I, I, I feel how I'm feeling, um, I'm aware with the sensations, and I accept it. And then it seems as though that, that the other word is choice. Yeah. It, it, mm. Acceptance is sort of, maybe sounds like square one. Mm. Reframing to a position, and now feel like I have a choice rather than I'm being backed into a corner yeah. of aspiring thought. Yeah, yeah. I would say the, f the square one is noticing, is the awareness. Okay, okay. Yeah, right, the square one is the, is the awareness, that sort of observing self. Yeah. The, s the step two is the ability to just accept and, 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 and uh, yeah, just let it be. And the square three would be, okay, now I'm aware I'm feeling like that and I really want to accept it and I want to allow it to be here. But what do I want to do with it? Okay. And and it, for me, it's almost thinking about the the brain as there is a spotlight, and we decide to put the spotlight where we think is really helpful. Yeah. So using mindfulness technique is I can choose to put the spotlight on my nerves, or I can choose to put the spotlight on what's going to really help me to perform. Wow. And what sort of results have you found from it? Um, I so <coughs> I think. Again, I think that sort of sense of relief, when athletes start to shift their belief on what is a thought, what is an emotion, and actually the fact that they, they are not permanent when mm. there is a difficult experience but it's not going to last, and they're able to really accept that, they, I think they, th they feel really relief because they feel they can have control over where they're going to focus their attention. And they, when we always say, just focus on what you can control and accept what you can't control, yeah. Mindfulness is that, but actually thoughts and emotions are things you can't control when they occur to you, mm. but you can control where you put your attention. Right. And when they start to really understand that, I think they feel um, quite empowered uh, over their, their mind, I guess, and their and, um, yeah, and the performance. So, so I can imagine from a, from a purely uh, pathos point of view, just, just how much relief that would feel to be able to know I can do something with this mm. um, and, and 
just give me the counter to that. What's the logic behind it? What's the science? What's going on in our brains? Yeah, so there's a, some quite interesting study in neuroscience who did um, fMRI and, and lots of mm. uh, different techniques to investigate what's going on when someone is uh, trying to notice what's going on and accept and then choose to refocus on something else. Yeah. So if I give you this study, is it was people who are used to meditate, mm. and they asked them to basically focus on their breathing, but every time they were starting to drift their attention, just mind wander, yeah. they had to raise their finger, and every time they were refocusing back on breathing, they had to sort of put down their finger, right. and they were measuring uh, during fMRI whatever was going on in the brain during that time. And what they realize is actually the the ability to the, the moment where they notice that they're drifting and they start to be distracted by something else um, the part of the brain that is activated is is really different part of the brain to the one who is bringing back the attention to the breathing okay. um, and the part of the brain who is activated when the mind wander is mm. just all over the place so right. it's not very okay. uh, and um, and so what they showed by that is actually there is a part of the brain that is uh, in, in the parietal area who is really uh, good at noticing when we're not focusing on uh, something that is going to help achieve our goal okay. um, and is almost potentially sending a signal to the more prefrontal part of the brain who is all linked to the executive function okay. is going to help control the attention again and and um, and that was really interesting to show that there's yeah. almost a mindfulness mindfulness brain network that is going on when you try to notice, um, to then make the choice to refocus back on on, uh, on what's important to you in the moment. So you have we have a, a warning system in some ways. As soon as you notice, the brain is saying, "Yeah, this isn't this isn't right." Yeah. We, we now we get that executive decision making exactly yeah. um, function in mm. place to say, "Right, yeah, get get working on this, guys." Exactly. <laughs> to figure this out. Exactly. But what what they also show in neuroscience is. Um, the more you meditate, so that sort of 10,000 hours rule mm. is actually quite true for mindfulness okay, because so the more you practice, the, the, they show that the thicker the, the grey matter, I mean okay. I'm not a neuroscientist, but yeah. they really showed that the, yeah, the more hours uh, you meditated, the, the, the more this neural network was right. um, stronger. That's interesting. So if I, if I do some weights, mm. I'll feel and I'll see improvements in muscle tissue, but but actually knowing that that, that area of the brain can strengthen yeah. through function, yeah. um, that's that's good to know because these sorts of techniques they can quite quite feel ethereal. They can yeah, be yeah. out in the open. You don't know what's yeah. whether you, you haven't got measurable improvements yeah, yeah. on a day-to-day -day mm. basis. Yeah. Mm. Is that is that where the field's going? Um, how how do you see the uh, mindfulness? Yeah. Future impact. Yeah. So I, th I think for me, the, in in terms of my experience as an applied practitioner, I think more and more I realise that if athletes don't practice uh, mindfulness on a day-to-day -day basis mm. and they try to integrate that in their training, in their but or even just when they just um, in the just normal day, yeah. when they, the this ability to notice when I start to be caught up in an emotion and that's that ability to accept and refocus back in the present, I think. They just have to integrate that all the time because if not, if they just try to apply that in the performance in the competitive environment, it's going to be really difficult to make it um, really strong and robust when pressure is high. Right. That's one. So, so I think um, how I can help better athletes to almost take that as a philosophy, as a way to see um, life and and live their life. I think that's one thing I really want to pursue. And the second thing is. For me, the earlier we start with young athletes right. to develop okay. these skills, the more it's going to be on grain and, and the brain plasticity as you know for teenagers yeah. um, and young adults, it's, it's so incredible that I think we, these metacognitive skills, this observing yeah. self, is really something we can start developing young. That's interesting. And I think more and more I'm hearing from experienced uh, practitioners and professionals mm -hmm. that that we end up sort of working with people in the, when they're at the top yeah. as opposed to on a journey yeah. and how so many valuable lessons can be laid oh, early on definitely. in the career. I, I agree so much. 
the number of athletes I worked with who were adults, yeah. who I truly believe that if we did um, similar work early on, it would have been um, yeah. so much easier for them, for their pathway, for their journey. But, and again, even as developing as people, I think it would have been, yeah. Because uh, yeah. elite sport is a hard world, so mm. um, how we can equip uh, young athletes uh, as early as possible to, um, so, France, Caribbean, back to France, Australia. Caribbean is French. Uh, okay. <laughs> it was the French Caribbean. <laughs> okay. You're still moving about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Weymouth, UK, yeah. back to France now. So, what's what's the future hold for you? Um, so, I've, I've started my own business. So, um, I uh, I basically work for either sports or or businesses, companies. Mm. Um, Again, in a similar way to help people unlock their potential, uh, to help. Um, I'm really passionate about teams, uh, how really to help team function optimally, but also to um, enjoy working together. I think yeah. today in the corporate world, um, you know, sometimes people get out of bed in the morning and they're not really happy to go to work. So mm -hmm. I feel it'd be quite amazing to transfer some of the lessons and the methods and the and the tools used in the elite athlete world into the corporate world um, to help more people mm. uh, live a life they, they love and feel they, I guess, uh, achieve what they really want to achieve in their life. Wonderful. Well, congratulations with that as well. Thank you. Uh, and as to everything you've achieved. So, um, and I've no doubt that, that uh, you'll, you'll flourish in that environment. But Emily, thank you so much for all the thank insights and, and sharing your story and, and what you've achieved. Thank you very much, Steve. It was such a pleasure to uh, have this conversation with you today. Thank Wonderful. you. So I found that a really interesting discussion with Emily. Uh, not just the importance of following your own curiosity in proactively making your own opportunities, but but just reminded me how much mindfulness has got to offer us all, uh, particularly about how we become aware of the present experiences in a non-judgmental way. Also the importance of realizing that we have a choice in how we attend to the experiences that we're going through on a day-to-day -day basis. And I love the fact that the idea that the brain is actually developing when we're doing this is you're training it like, like a muscle. I mentioned at the start of the podcast that we've actually got a, a recording of Emily giving us a three-minute mindfulness coaching track, and that's available to download at Supporting Champions' website on the SoundCloud account and on iTunes. So please feel free to download that. Keep it on your phones for whenever you might need a dose of mindfulness from Emily. And, and let us know how you get on too. Um, if you'd like more, then please do let us know. And that's something we might be able to explore. You can get more from Emily if you follow her on Twitter at Emily Tiano. We're also on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve at support underscore champs. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, YouTube and Supporting Champions co.uk and if you've got a comment a thought and a question please do fire them across join us next time when we'll be talking to david fletcher about how we respond under adversity